my friends, and welcome to the Experience Our Industry podcast. I am Dr. Brian Greenwood, and I am super excited to be here to, to be here today with a, um, a former um, advisory council member for, for, our, for our department from 2012 to 2020, and a current friend of the program, uh, Brad Gessner. Hi, Brad. How are you? Hey, Brian. Doing great. How are you? Oh, it's great. Great to see you. I'm doing fabulous. And, um, you know, uh, Brad, is, Brad is now retired. So uh, he's, uh, he's make, making his time between California and Texas. He's the, uh, the current owner of Riverhouse Pecan Farm. Um, I'm, I'm saying it correctly, uh, Brad, because I've got, you know, I've got Southern roots. I can't say pecan, uh, <laughs> you know, like I'm, uh, like I'm from London or something, right? Uh, That's right? You know, when you're in the South and you say pecan, they know that you're not from around these parts, right? That's right. <laughs> but, uh, but Brad uh, had, um, you know, his, his uh, last position and before he retired, and we're going to, we're going to get into that was as um, senior vice president for convention centers for AEG facilities. And so Brad, our, our students, uh, my, my sport management students in particular know about AEG um, and our event students in particular as well know about AEG because AEG is, is um, you know, just a leader worldwide in, in facilities. And um, uh, I can't wait to talk to you about that experience. I know some of the amazing things that you did um, in terms of acquiring convention centers and, um, and, and running them sustainably. I think that's one of the other things, um, you know, Brad, we we had a professional development trip where some of our uh, students a few years back went down and, and Brad did this just amazing presentation on what they were doing at the Los Angeles Convention Center in terms of sustainability. So just always admired the, the efforts that, that you guys at AEG have made along those lines. And Brad has also been involved in higher education. He's um, taught at San Diego State University. Am, am I correct there? Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, adjunct faculty there. Yep, adjunct faculty, and so, but let's go back, Brad. Uh, I w- I want our listeners to to be able to connect with you a little bit more um, in terms of where you came from and and that sort of thing. Where where did you grow up? Well, and that's a uh, kind of an interesting story. I was the product of a military family, so my dad was an Air Force pilot. Was born in California. We were stationed in Riverside back in the fifties. And uh, that was when Riverside was a beautiful little garden area of California. <laughs> and, uh, and then it moved around, you know, like military families do and, and went to a SAC base, a strategic air command base. He was a, a D-47 pilot and we moved to Topeka, Kansas. And then from there, we went to Honolulu, Hawaii. And I lived right on Pearl Harbor on Hickam Air Force Base. Uh, for a number of years. That's where I became, and you know, I'm a surfer. That's where I learned how to surf. I had two older brothers and a dad that surfed. And and then uh, uh, at the time, very sadly, we were transferred from Honolulu, Hawaii to San Antonio, Texas in, uh, in 1967. And that was a tough move for a, for a surfer. Not a whole lot of surfing there on the river wall. No, although it's a beautiful city, and you know, uh, we'll talk a little bit later about having worked there too. Uh, I I am much fonder of it today, uh, and appreciate it much more today than I did when I was, you know, 15 years old and going into high school. But 
uh, went to high school there in San Antonio, then went to college at what was then Southwest Texas State in San Marcos, Texas, up, up the road, up in the hill country, and just fell in love with the hill country of Texas. Oh, right, right, right on. Okay. So, you know, I knew there, I knew there was a, a, a Texas connection at some point. And so that, yeah. that makes, that makes more sense now. Um, so, and when you started to tell your story, I, that sounds familiar, you know, um, uh, Jerusha, uh, my, my wife uh, is, is from a military family. And so she kind of, she, she jumped around and, um, uh, growing up, um, I, I found, I, I think it, create some resilience in you um, in, in being able to jump around. And it also creates this adaptability um, aspect, I think, in being able to adapt to different situations. And I would imagine that would have benefited you later in your career. Is that true? Absolutely. I mean, there's definitely, you know, pluses and minuses with life like that. I, as a kid, I always kind of envied, you know, my cousins or other friends who were born and raised in the same house. Their grandparents were, you know, two blocks over, and they grew up with the same friends. And and uh, you know, so having roots, I think, you know, has a lot of advantages that us military kids, you know, don't have. But absolutely, especially in in the hospitality uh, industry, um, being able to, you know, to really advance, you got to be able to move. You know, whether you're uh, in the hotel business or the arena business or convention center business, if you really want to advance and there's an opportunity in Oregon, um, you, you move to Oregon and folks like me, that's not a big deal. But if you've been born and raised in the same town, you know, and that might be a, a more of a challenge. Right, right. So any siblings growing up? Yeah, I have uh, two older brothers um, that uh, did not get into this uh, industry. And um uh, they, but the the good news was they they taught me how to fight and how to surf. <laughs> I was gonna say, I was. <laughs> it's so funny as you were saying that. I was thinking of your era. You know, uh, I, I I was like, I, I bet you, I bet you, they were a little rough on you uh, as a younger two older brothers. Like uh, that that era, um, they they taught you how to how to scrap. I'm sure, and uh, absolutely, but that's absolutely. good. That they also taught you how to surf. That that's that's cool of them. <laughs> Yeah, they probably got you into music too. I bet, huh? They share. Oh, well, yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, that was the era. You know, I think the music in the '60s was probably. You know, of course, I'm a little biased that way, but uh, that was when it all started. I think. Oh man! Oh man! Something else. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, you're talking to an old deadhead here, so uh, I, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I look fondly back on on those times for sure. So. So being a recreation administration uh, major in college, I imagine, you know, back in the 70s that, that, uh, that there was not a whole lot of hospitality, was there? So I, I'm, I'm curious how you got involved with hospitality after being a recreation administration major. Yeah, and you're right. Back in the 70s, uh, recreation management or parks and recreation management really didn't have a whole lot of the, the hospitality like you see today. And of course, curriculums now that are that are focused like Cal Poly's you know, for the hospitality and experience industry, which I think that the title really hits the nail on the head. Yeah. Um, back when I was going to school, they were telling you, hey, get into a line of work that you love and you'll never work a day in your life. So I thought, well, I'd like to, you know, recreation. What what better way to, I can actually make a living having fun. I, I want to do that. But yeah. I did have my, my sights set kind of on resort management. And again, you know, when you're and, and this is something that I, I definitely want to share with your students. When you're 18 or 19 or 20 years old, you know, really what you think you want to do for the rest of your life 
may not necessarily be what you want to do when you're 30 or 40 or 50 or not. So yeah. uh, I wanted, you know, I love to surf. I played tennis. I was into all kinds of sports. So I thought, you know, I want to do that for the rest of my life. So I did kind of have an eye for resort management and they did have a little bit of, of that curriculum and they had guest speakers come in from, from various, you know, tennis centers and resorts and that kind of thing. And mm -hmm. so I did have a desire to kind of go that direction. And I kind of sought it out because it wasn't really a big part of the curriculum. Right. And, right. So, so let's talk about that transition. You know, uh, our um, obviously our, our students are are interested in in how you find jobs and 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 what those jobs lead to and all those sorts of things, right? And and so you know, you you got started in a in a pretty typical parks and recreation department, right there in in, um, in uh, St. Lucie County, uh, Fort Pierce, Florida, right? What, no. Well, it actually was before that. I did was an it even before that? With, okay. Yeah, with the Dade County Parks and Recreation Department in Miami. Oh, okay. And was doing my internship right out of school. Uh -huh. And midway through my internship, they offered me a center director position managing a tennis center in Tamiami, Florida. Wow. And uh, so I was teaching tennis and putting on tennis tournaments and managing a tennis pro shop and, and, and learning, you know, how to schedule different tennis pros and tournaments. And again, you know, it's all, it's all part of the hospitality uh, or experience industry, you yeah. know? So that was really my, my, uh, you know, start in the industry, mm -hmm. but I knew I didn't want to be, you know, managing a tennis center for the rest of my life. Right. And, and that's when I went to St. Lucie County, uh, and it wasn't it really I'd, I'd like to be able to tell you that it was a lot of, you know, forethought and foresight and all of that. But the fact of the matter was, I was a 21 year old kid who loved to surf. And there was a really good job open in Fort Pierce, Florida, where some of the best surf on the east coast of Florida is. Right. And it just so happened to go into the the uh, civic center and, and auditorium management, which is what I did for the rest of my life, really. Right, right, right. Well, well, so so let's talk. You know, obviously, I I told you in advance that that you know we're not going to walk through every uh, every right. job uh, along the along the path, but but you know you you really you you ultimately um, built a career that 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 ended with um, just an incredible position, right? Almost like the culmination of 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 hard work and 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 going up the corporate ladder right and um yeah. and 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 not really the corporate ladder in terms of like the same corporation right but but an arc that ended up with probably the world's um you know leading facility management company um and uh and uh but let, let's talk about the, those early experiences i imagine convention centers in the uh in the 80s were quite different from uh but from when you ended in 2020 so what was uh what was it like managing a, a convention center like the san antonio convention center that you that you managed what was it what was it like back in the in the 80s well, and it was, you know, it was different, definitely. And this is actually in the, in the late 70s, Brian. So, yeah, yeah. you know, we, we've always called it, and I've heard you call it, too, the accidental industry. And it really was, I discovered it accidentally. I applied for this job for a civic center and, mm -hmm. and an auditorium. And, and again, they're all very similar. And these used to all fall under parks and recreation departments. Right. Um, they don't anymore. Now they have their own departments because it's big business. So, right. Um, I really that one of the things I wanted to share too with your students is it seems like so many people and I do you know as you know I, I taught at San Diego 
state and I've, and I've lectured up there with you guys. Yeah. So many students, once they graduate, they want to start mid mid level or maybe at the top. You know, yeah. I want to, I want to start as a vice president and yeah. that could be the worst thing you could do. The money would be great, yeah, but it would be the worst thing you can do. And, and so I was so fortunate to be able to get in on the ground floor of a brand new civic center, which was really an auditorium theater and then an outdoor amphitheater. Right. And because we were in a small town in St. Lucie County, which is Port Pierce, Florida, we had to do everything ourselves. We did our own concessions. Mm. We did our own ticket sales. Sometimes we did our own promotions, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And, and you know, there were a lot of times when I was a young guy thinking, God, we have to do everything. I wish I could work in one of these big cities where they contract a lot of that out. And uh-huh. looking back on it, and again, the message to the students is that is you can't buy a better education. You wouldn't be able to afford the tuition to to get the kind of education that I got because I had a job that required me to do it all. And and we were able to just, you know, stumble through it and sometimes learn it the hard way. And that's that's the best education I've really had uh, that allowed me to go on and, as you pointed out, be able to over 42 years, be able to finally end up with a fantastic organization and frankly, I think the best job in the industry. It was tough to retire from that job. I'm uh, sure. Yeah, I'm sure. Well, well, you know, I, I think that's a really great point that you make, Brad. I mean, I, I talk about one of one of our selling points with Cal Poly um, and Cal Poly Athletics, and uh, and um, one of our other uh, Learn by Doing Labs is, is something called Slow Blues, which is the San Luis Obispo Blues, which is our summer collegiate baseball team, right? And students in Cal Poly Athletics and the Slow Blues, they do, like you said, they get a chance to run it. They get a chance to see how everything runs. And I I tell them, I'm like, you know, if you're at a UCLA or University of Texas, you would be one person among thousands doing a very, very specific task. Whereas here you're you're doing exactly what you just said brad you get to see how everything operates because they they rely on you in these smaller organizations and i think that's a i think it's a fabulous point and i really encourage your students brian to to do that look you know never feel like a job is beneath you um you know you're going to learn something and you're going to probably something that you're going to be able to definitely be able to apply and the best managers. And when I was hiring general managers to run these centers, mm-hmm. I've looked for people that started at the bottom and, and essentially have done every single job, just like in the hotel industry. Most of the best general managers of hotels start out as a front desk clerk and then went into housekeeping and then went, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And they, they actually know how to do every job that people in their hotel that they're now managing right. have to do. They know how all the pieces work together and, and can can help it to function. Um, so so let's talk about um, uh, the arc of uh, the, the arc of one's career. You know, obviously our our students and, and you obviously in, in being adjunct and and having been close to, to college campuses, um, you know how students uh, tend tend to look and, and think in terms of, of thinking about their arc and, and how much that has changed over the last uh, 30 or 40 years you know, where um, our parents' generation, you know, it was a, a gold watch and uh, <laughs> from, the, from the same company, that was the, uh, that was the right. ideal, right? And, you know, you probably had what, what, uh, uh, 12, 15 different positions uh, over the right. arc of your career. So is there, is there one thing that w- when you look back, um, 
that that you feel like besides what you've already talked about, right, with those early experiences of learning how everything works and 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 being on the ground floor, is there is there something that you feel like um, really separated you in your career in, in being able to move up and being able to to see that positive arc throughout your career? Yeah, I, you know, and and real quick, you know, I, I think that you you mentioned, you know, that our parents' generation, they basically went to work for one. My dad was an Air Force pilot his entire career and then retired. You know, other people, like you said, work for one company, get the gold watch and 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 the pension and and they're off. And then there's my generation that uh, I'm a little older than you, Brian, but my generation that maybe moved around a little bit more. Yeah. I would discourage moving around too much. And I do think our industry lends itself to have having to move in order to climb the ladder. And and so don't be afraid to do that. And I've lived in you know Florida, Texas, uh, California, San Diego, LA. I mean, I, so I've had to move around in order to move up. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but plan. And I've always been a believer. Plan to spend three to five years in that position. I know. I know when you're you know 20, 21, 22 years old. That's that's a you know that's a big chunk of your life. Right. Uh, but it but you really need to do that in order to master it. It also sends a signal to to employers that you're not, you know, you're not going to, uh, you're not flighty. You're not going to move on too quickly. And I, and I, so I would encourage that, but to answer your, your question, probably, you know, when I, when I set my sights on a convention center, so I, as you know, I started out kind of in the auditorium arena, amphitheater, putting on concerts and, and those kinds of shows, we would do some flat shows or, you know, uh, consumer type shows that are more convention center related but but I when I went to San Antonio and managed the Hemisphere Arena, which is no longer there, that's where the Spurs played, and it was mm-hmm. back during you know all the touring shows that you know Grateful Dead played there. And you may have even you may have even attended a concert there, but uh, I didn't make it there. But yeah, I, I've heard of it. I've definitely I've definitely heard of some tapes. <laughs> yeah, and then and then I I also over, oversaw the Municipal Auditorium, so we were in the live entertainment industry, and I had a a director of mine who was a great guy and a good mentor uh, pulled me aside and I was in my thirties and I had two young children at home and I was working all of these nights and weekends. And, and he said, you know what, you might want to consider getting on the convention center side of the business. Um, you know, back then, especially the, the live concerts, you know, you're, you're dealing with some riffraff and, and, you know, it was a, it was a wild time for that kind of rock and roll industry. And he said, you know, you might still be enjoying it now, Brad, but you got two young a wife and two kids at home. You might want to look at the convention center industry. It's a, it's a little more sophisticated, a little more civilized is how <laughs> he put it. And, you know, because I'd been around it, I could kind of see what he was talking about. And so I, I made a deliberate effort to do that. And again, kind of like I mentioned earlier, I, I love to surf. I, I had been to San Diego before. I just read that they were going to be building a convention center in San Diego. This was like 1980, 85, 86. Uh-huh. So I set my sights and had a written goal that I'm going to, go to work and someday, maybe someday become the general manager of the San Diego Convention Center. I wrote that in 1986 and became the general manager in 2006. 
I love it. That's awesome. That's awesome. But took a while. Uh, yeah, but on the way there, I mean, you know, uh, the positions that you held were, or it was almost like you were, it's obvious you had that goal, right? So yeah. is, is that, is that something that you would, that you would recommend for, for students and young professionals to, to set goals? Is that, um, absolutely? Have, have you done that throughout your career? Absolutely. And make sure they're written goals and make sure you're reviewing them on a regular basis. I mean, I think we've all been, you know, been, been doing that, but but it, that was the point to where I really got focused, and it maybe took me longer than most. But I, then I then I ended up, you know, putting together uh, almost like a Gantt chart of how how am I going to get to be, you know, my ultimate goal of being the general manager of the San Diego Commission. So this is this is a, a region I want to live in, a place where I want to live and raise my children and have my family, but also work in this incredible industry and. And so uh, I was actually out there talking with the general manager who had been hired before the building had even broken ground. They hired uh, the Anaheim Convention Center general manager, uh, who became a mentor of mine, to to come down to San Diego and, and start setting it all up. And I met him at a convention and told him, someday I want to go to work for you. And right. he said, well, you know, I, we're not going to even break ground for another six months. But if you get out here and I'm going to be looking for local people that know San Diego, you know, get out here for a few years and, and show what you can do. Um, you know, I'll, I'll definitely keep you in mind. He was he was a, a very encouraging kind of guy, but no guarantees. Mm-hmm. And I, I was out here on vacation, applied for the convention services director job at the Sheraton on Harbor Island, mm-hmm. uh, right there, you know, on the bay in San Diego and was lucky enough to get it. And so a month after he told me that I was living and working at the Sheraton on Harbor Island in San Diego. Right, 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 right. Someday, and I even told him that during the interview. By the way, I can probably give you three years here, but if I if there's any chance I can go with that new convention center, and, you know, foolishly, I told him that during the interview. You did. <laughs> and they would remind me of that periodically, but you know, they were supportive of it. They knew they were going to get at least three years out of me, and probably they right. thought, and the likelihood of him actually getting it, you know, right. we'll take our chances and 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 working for the Sheridan Corporation. I think everybody in our industry should work for. For the in the hotel industry for a period of time, just because of of the, what you can learn about hospitality and how to do it right. Right, I think that's a really important point. The integrated elements of of um, of hotels and convention centers and that sort of thing. It's just obviously um, it's a huge benefit, and um, I imagine a, a a corporation like Sheridan understanding how it works and and that sort of thing. I imagine was very beneficial. So you know, uh, uh, a few years later, uh, you you did end up at uh, at the San Diego Convention Center as the director of event services, and so um, uh, you know those those pe- those people at Sheridan. You told that they, they didn't know you had the goal written down. They they just thought it, they just thought they thought it was a pie in the sky, but you you had written it down, right? So uh, yeah. So so yeah. So talk to us about. Um, talk to us about that experience. Um, and, in um, you know, so for almost eight years, you, you, you were in that position. Um, right. uh, did, did you think for a long time that you could do the general manager position while you were, while you were in that position? Oh, of course. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Doesn't everybody, right. I could do that. I could do that. Yeah, but again, like, like I said earlier, Brian, you know, thank God I didn't get all of the 
you know, uh, opportunities that I'd hoped for when I was younger, because I just, you're just not ready for it. Or, you know, it's not to say that you might not have been able to succeed, but it would have just been much more difficult. So, you know, the the one thing about that, yeah, the one thing too about the uh, going on with the San Diego Event Center, they hired me a year before we opened and that was to come in. and, And that also is something that if any of your students ever get an opportunity to do something like that, you'll probably only want to do it once. Because it's like opening, and you know, as opening a hotel, right? So it's it's such a, a different job, uh, and and a much more difficult job. But again, you couldn't you couldn't afford the tuition to learn how to do that. Yeah. And working next to some really talented people, mm-hmm. and this general manager that I spoke to you about, who had been in Anaheim, he had done that already in Anaheim. So, so I just uh, connected with him and and learned so much from him, but. Uh, being able to go in and, you know, you're putting in, you know, 10, 12 hour days, writing job descriptions and training manuals and, and interviewing and hiring and preparation, all the things that you have to do to open up a huge business. Um, You know, if you've never done it, you you, you wouldn't know how to do it. And I learned from the best and, and that definitely, again, prepared me for the ultimate job that I had with ADG, being able to take over, um, you know, convention centers and essentially like we did in LA, uh, start a new business because we, when we took over the Los Angeles convention center in, in, uh, 2013, uh, all of the city staff, it had been run by the city for, for almost 40 years. Um, all the city staff went into other city jobs because to your, to your earlier point, they didn't want to lose their seniority and their pensions mm-hmm. and <laughs> right. their, you know, their, uh, benefits. So, we essentially opened a new business and new business, what I learned yeah. in San Diego helped me with that. Oh, I'm sure. And so for, for, for those who are listening, who, who aren't um, that knowledgeable about facility management, you know, my background in campus recreation um, uh, there, there's a, a, obviously a facility management element um, to campus recreation in that you're managing these big recreation centers. And so I know from that experience that it's a, it's a hang your hat type thing. When you open a building, if you're a part of a team that opens a building, um, it's not that you can write your ticket because it may be that, (laughs) you know, you you may be incompetent and you couldn't, you couldn't (laughs) do the job. Right. But, but, but if you are, and you successfully are able to be a part of a team like that, it's a really hang your hat type, um, a resume uh, element. And, um, and so, yeah, I, I definitely can see where that um, helped you and, and benefited you a- along the way. So let's, um, you know, let's, let's, let's move into that, those, the, the AEG years, um, if, if we could, um, because I, I just think, Brad, it's, it's, um, obviously I was there when you gave, gave the talk, um, at the Los Angeles Convention Center to our to our students a few years back, and it was just, I, I I have to I'm not just saying this because we're talking. It it really was one of the most fascinating um, stories that, that I've uh, that I've ever heard told. Right, you know you thank you you show the, you, you show the pictures of um, and, and and those who those who know it now, right. As the Los Angeles convention center and LA live and, and, um, Staples center and all, everything right there. It seems like it's just always been there, <laughs> yeah. but you in, in being a part of the development of it, you know, it wasn't, it was a rundown part of Los Angeles that had been, um, ignored for many years 
And um, I, I remember you you showed a picture of like a a dirt a dirt lot across the yeah. street, <laughs> right? In downtown Los Angeles. Downtown yeah. Los Angeles, yeah. In the nineties, yeah. 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 So tell uh, us about that process and what it was like and all that. Well, and, and to back up a little bit, so when we were getting ready to open up the San Diego Convention Center, and this was in 1989, this general manager that I told you about, and our marketing director and I, mm-hmm. were going to go up to the Los Angeles Convention Center and poach some of their business. There were some show managers that were there, right. and we didn't let them know we were coming. We let the show managers know we were coming, but we didn't let the management of the building know we were coming of because course. we were literally just going to go up there and try to steal some business because San Diego is a nicer city, right? Right. <laughs> and we got there like two in the afternoon and and parked in this dirt lot that you you referenced. And this was 1989. Right. And, uh, and we looked at each other and said, we're not going to stay here past dark. I mean, it was a rough part of town. Was it really? Yeah. Um, and of course, there was no Staples Center. There was no LA Live. There was no JW Marriott and Ritz Carlton there. None of that was there, just the convention center. Yeah. And so many of these convention centers are built in these you know, kind of blighted areas with the, the hope, and sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't, but with the hope of all the redevelopment that will occur. San Diego is probably the, the best example out of all of them I know about, Brian, where they built it down on Navy fields and what was believe it or not, kind of a rough part of San Diego, right on the bay there. Mm-hmm. And they broke ground, I think, in you know 86. And all the redevelopment occurred. You you know, the, the Marriott's there now, the Twin Towers, the Second Tower was built, and the Hyatt was built, and Hilton was built, that Petco Park was built, and all of the gas lamp was built. And it's just an incredible, I know you've been there, and a lot of your students have, have been there. Some of them probably are from here. You know, that all used to be a rough part of of San Diego. So they build these convention centers to create this redevelopment and all this economic impact from conventions coming to town and staying in your hotels, eating in your restaurants, renting your cars and spending their money, right? Yep. Well, LA it did that, but it didn't work. They right. built the convention center in 1972 and it remained a rough part of town and a blighted part of Los Angeles mm-hmm. uh, for a long, long time until one of the my favorite people of all time, Philip Anschutz, Anschutz Entertainment Group, AEG, right. uh, had a vision. And he wanted to um, bring almost like a Times Square type of feel to Los Angeles, which he thought, you know, it, it's, a, it's a natural. Yeah, yeah. And he's an incredible individual. I don't know him well, but I had a chance to get to know him a little bit. And, and um, he's one that I admire. And it created so many jobs. So he basically ended up buying the, the bankrupt L.A. Kings uh, hockey team right. um, in 96, I think it was, and and also bought the fabulous forum where the Lakers happened to play right. and with the vision of I want to move this downtown Los Angeles. And maybe I'm, I'm telling you more than your, your students want to know, but he basically had this vision, worked with the city of Los Angeles and and. And uh, it to- and the Lakers and Lakers said, well, well, we'll consider moving to a new arena, but you're going to have to be a part owner. So he bought a third of the Lakers. Right. So not only did he, well, when you're a billionaire, you can do that, right? Right. So right. He not only you know owned the Kings, which you know no one really knew of hockey with hockey in Los Angeles. You know, yeah. does that make any sense at all? Right. Well, it does. You know, because yeah. there's a whole lot of hockey fans in Los Angeles nowadays. Exactly. Uh, and the Lakers. And then he talked with the Clippers and Clippers said, yeah, you build a new arena. We'll come there. And he invested almost $4 billion with a B dollars in this blighted area next to the convention. He wanted to be next to the convention center because he knew what the synergy would be. 
with wow. conventions and trade shows and in LA Live and the restaurants and uh-huh. and there would always be like Times Square, always be people there, whether they're there for a convention or a Lakers game or a Clippers game or a, you know, some other major event. And over a period of about you know 10 years, he created that. Well, one of the pieces that they were uh, disappointed in when they contacted me in, in 2012 was the convention center. It was still being run by the city. Again, not to not to badmouth you know the city, but a lot of times government just can't do it as well Hard, because yeah. there's so many you know um, requirements and and uh, you know things that they have to deal with that private sector doesn't always have to deal with. Right. And so they convinced the city that, uh, or actually their city manager decided we're going to privatize it because that's really the trend. And and that's when they hired me to come in and and hopefully we would be the ones that would win the contract and. And so I came on board in 2012. They didn't have a, a convention center department, but because what I'd done in San Diego, they had heard about me and and they made me an offer I couldn't refuse because to get me to leave San Diego and the surf in San Diego to move to Los Angeles, they had right. to. Right, but, right. But by this point in my life, Brian, you know, now I'm in my, you know, my mid fifties, you know, career is a little more important than it was when I was, you know, in my in my 20s and right and course. definitely being able to retire so i went up there and and uh, formed a new department and joined aeg was office right there at la live which was an exciting time to be there right and um we we won the contract well um yeah just uh, and and you you mentioned I, I don't know how much of this your your students want to hear and i i, I would say all of it because that's <laughs> such an amazing story like you know so when when they go to to these places like LA Live and and um, and and Staples and the Convention Center there and 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 the Marriott and uh, you know and, and to just visualize it being blighted right and to think about the think about that that evolution is is I think pretty amazing and to hear hear it told from someone who was there and 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 witnessed it I think is is pretty amazing and. Um, you know, so I, I do want to. We're going to get into to more of what you did because I think that story is is pretty is pretty fabulous too in terms of um, reimagining um, the convention center during those years. But you know, I mean, you're so you're 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 hired with AEG, right? And you got a lot on your plate there. You're moving up to LA. So at the same time, you decide to get a master's degree at fifty-eight yeah. years old. Uh, wh- what? What in the? What in the world uh, got into you, Brad? There. <laughs> I know. Well, and it, that wasn't part of the plan. So I, I was still the general manager at the San Diego Convention Center, and had been that held that position for six years. Right. And just had such great staff around me to where honestly, there are times where you're, you've got such good people doing their jobs well that on a day-to-day basis, you know. They didn't need me. I mean, I really felt that way sometimes and credit to them. So I decided because I had been been teaching uh, periodically and lecturing quite a bit out of San Diego State and their hospitality and tourism management, I talked with Carl Winston, who, you know, runs that department there and and uh, had become friends with him. And I said, hey, you know, when I retire, I'm not ready to retire. When I retire, I'd like to teach. He goes, well, you got to have a master's degree at minimum. And, you know, a lot of a lot of folks like Brian have PhDs. And I well. Where, where can I get my master's? As a matter of fact, we're going to start one next year. There and you so go. I had applied, you know, applied for that, had been accepted, GRE the whole nine yards, and was getting ready to start when AEG offered me the job. 
I got you. So, so, you, so it was, I, 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 uh, I, I should have realized that you had, you had started that beforehand. So you, yeah, so you like were probably you were able to say to AEG, well, I want to finish my master's. Were you able to, was that part of negotiation? Yeah, it was. And, yeah. and, you know, essentially in, in, in AEG, I love them, but, uh, you know, they're, they're pretty, uh, nose to the grindstone business people. They said, as long as it doesn't affect your job, you can do oh. whatever you want. <laughs> okay. Okay. They didn't, like that. That they, they didn't care that you were getting they didn't care that you were getting better for credentials or anything like that they were like as long as it doesn't affect yeah. your job yeah. so essentially as long as you're here from like 7 a.m to 8 p.m what you do on your free time is yours you know <laughs> right and uh and, you know sometimes yeah. i joke about that but your students need to hear it you know a lot of these a lot of these times you gotta you know yeah. it's not going to be eight to five or or whatever and they no. they probably know that through your your program but not all not all students do. So right, right. Because because I know um, I know also what they told you, uh, what you were told. Like, make a profit, right? Make oh, yeah. a profit. Well, make a profit where one had never been done, had never been had before, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. For, and first off, start a department and and win the contract. Because honestly, and they never said this, but it was just known. Yeah. If I don't win the contract, they don't need a convention center department in AEG. Uh-huh. You know, the main reason they hired me was to win the LA convention center contract, mm-hmm. which wasn't even out for bid yet. Mm-hmm. And then, and then when, you know, win a few more in order for us to justify your existence, you know, and again, that's, and, and I knew that going into it, that's private sector. You know, you've got to, you got to prove yourself. You've got to, yep. you know, and, and so fortunately we did. And of course, you know, I'd love to take all the credit for it, but, but AEG is one heck of a, Right. you know, resource to be able to, especially in LA after what they had done with the LA live and everything. So right. um, it wasn't, you know, the fix wasn't in, but we were definitely odds on favorite to win it, right. but I worked hard and we did a We did a 1600 page proposal. I worked on it for five months um, and we won the contract. And, and as you mentioned earlier, the, and I had gone in and done an operational analysis during this period uh, as best I could when the city was running to see if we do win the contract, what are we going to need to do to turn it around? Because they had managed it for 42 years mm-hmm. and had had essentially required a subsidy or lost operate operationally had lost money every year for all 42 of those years. Right. Now in their defense, most cities that have convention centers that are run city convention centers do require a subsidy. And, and as you probably have taught your students that, the theory there is, is the economic impact that's generated and all the jobs that are generated right. justifies, you know, a few million dollars a year in operational losses, not to mention the million dollars a year in debt service to pay off the, in some cases, the, you know, 600, $700 million construction cost of the convention right. center. Um, right. So, but what the city of LA had said is whoever wins this contract is now not going to receive any operational subsidy from the city. And in fact, we want you to pay us money back. Mm-hmm. And a lot of folks said, no, that's impossible. Convention centers operationally can't make money or very few of them ever had. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I went in and did an operational analysis and found, and, and just did a deep dive into every single department, whether it's the electrical and how you do electrical distribution for the trade show or, mm-hmm. or the rental structure or how you do the, food and beverage operation, all of these revenue sources and all of the expense areas were evaluated. 
And we ended up uh, to cut right to the chase uh, by uh, the, the first year we broke even, second year uh, we made uh, a few million dollars. By year three, we had a $10 million a year surplus. Wow. That, that was banked for the city of Los Angeles. So, right. you know, they were obviously ecstatic. Frankly, I was a little surprised. I knew I knew I could get it to make money. I just right. didn't know how much. How much, right. And, right? and it wasn't like we were squeezing the show managers. In fact, we increased event activity, working more hand in glove with the Convention and Visitors Bureau, right. uh, which sometimes there's a little rift between the building operator and the salespeople with the bureau. Shouldn't be, but sometimes there is. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so we just had that relationship renewed. They had a new executive director. I was the new general manager. We made it a point together that we're going to be, you know, we're going to work together and we're going to have mutual respect and we're going to have our teams work well together. And, and it worked. And uh, I tell you, it's, it's, it's a success story that I was just fortunate to have been a part of it because it's, you know, Brian, every once in a not all of them in my career are, you know, happy endings, you know what I mean? Right. And that's the other thing I would also tell your students, if, if you have a failure to where for whatever reason, you know, you get in and, and you just weren't able to do the job well, or maybe the chemistry with the other people mm-hmm. that were there just never clicked or whatever. It's going to happen. You know, it happened to me. And uh, the key is, is to learn from it. You know, what, what I've maybe done differently, you know, don't blame it all on them. You know, I was perfect. They were all the bums, you know, not <laughs> right. Yeah. The case, you know, and then get on with the next one. Cause I guarantee you, there will be another one that you will succeed at. And, and this was, that's why I wanted to go out on a, on a high with, with this one. Not only was I at the right age, but I don't know that, that I could ever do any better than this one. And right, so, right. you know, we obviously, we won the Hawaii convention center next, just a few months after we won LA. So I was also transitioning that our very capable general manager in uh, Terry Orton. She's a fantastic still general manager there. Right. And, uh, and then, uh, about a, two years later, we won the Puerto Rico Convention Center right. and hired a, a local uh, there who, uh, Jorge, uh, that runs it still, still the general manager there. And then and then a few years after that, we won the Palm Springs Convention Center. We were four for four, right. of the, the ones that we've been on it. And I will also say that I think the reason why that we won those other contracts is that they saw what we were able to do for LA. And if you can even just do some of that for our building, we'll be happy. Right. Well, I was going to say, I mean, it's not like it's, it's a, you know, students might think to themselves like, Oh, it's just this enormous industry. And it, it is, but, um, but at the same time, it's not like, so almost everyone convention centers worldwide, n- people knew the story of the LA convention center. And so uh, I, I imagine that was again, something to hang your hat on. And, um, and, and I would like for you, if you don't mind to tell that story, I think one of the things that I was most fascinated by was um, the additional revenue that you developed um, through a partnership with Hollywood, right? I mean, obviously Hollywood's right there, um, right there in your backyard. And, um, and so yeah. uh, I, I love the story that you tell, that you tell about um, how many movies, uh, if you think about that, uh, the, the, I remember you talking about the backdrop there in the convention yeah. center and realizing that that would be a, a spot that might be, uh, might be great for film. Uh, so t- can you tell that story? 
You bet. And, and uh, Mayor Garcetti um, was real intent on, on making sure that we worked very closely with you know, the location managers for Hollywood. I mean, you know, bottom line is uh, they were leaving Los Angeles and going and filming everywhere but Los Angeles because it was just so difficult. And so he was making an effort to make it very easy for, for movies and commercials and television shows to be able to you know, stay in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And so as part of our contract, they actually wrote in the contract that you will um, track this and make an effort to improve upon it. Well, what we learned when we met with the, the location agents, and I would give a lot of credit to who was then uh, our, our director of marketing, Ellen Schwartz, who, by the way, uh, I, I promoted to assistant general manager and then general manager when I segued out. And so Ellen Schwartz is still the general manager of Los Angeles Convention Center doing, doing a great job. Awesome. But she, I hired her as our uh, director of marketing and, and basically tasked her with you know, meeting with these location managers and see you know, how we can end up being the, the location of choice. And you know, the credit really goes to her. I gave her you know, as much support as I could as general manager. And anytime she said, well, we can probably get this as long as we do this, this, and this. I said, you got it. You know, awesome. <laughs> whatever it takes, get them in yeah. here. And, um, you know, when you see a lot of these backdrops, like it's an airport um, or uh, Westworld, you know, the, the train scene where they come in the train, all of those were filmed at the Los Angeles Convention Center, typically uh, in the wee hours of the morning. Because let's face it, we're a very busy convention center. So in the past, the previous general manager and, and management would say, well, no, we're booked. You know, we've got the widget manufacturers in. And, well, they're not there from, you know, <laughs> 9 p.m. to 6 a.m. Yeah, but no, they've got the place booked. Well, we're not, we don't need to use the exhibit hall or the exhibit hall. We need to use your lobby because we want it to look like an airport or we want it to look like a train station or something. Mm-hmm. So we just became, you know, very flexible. And yeah, did some of our staff have to work from 12 a.m. to 6 a.m.? Yeah. Yeah. But we were, we were able to be in, you know, what's in your wallet? Most of those commercials. Uh, are filmed at the Los Angeles Convention Center, right? Whether it's going up our escalators or, you know, airport scenes. I my wife is sick of me. Uh, we're watching a movie or a television show, and I go, "That was filmed at the. Look at that. That's that's there the West Lobby. <laughs> and that's the North Lobby." <laughs> yeah, I don't want to hear it. You know, she's like, but, uh, you know, it, it, it I know, I good. know. <laughs> yeah, but it, it, it honestly, Brian, it, and it and it. By the way, not only did it it keep that business in Los Angeles mm-hmm. and not going to South Carolina or wherever they were going, right. it, it made our mayor very happy. But yeah. even maybe as important as that, oh, by the way, we generated about a half a million dollars net a year right. for the LA Convention. And that money didn't, by the way, I think it's important to point out, that money didn't go to the private sector Andrews Entertainment Group, AEG. All, we got paid our management fee. right? You know, but all that extra money got paid to the city. And was essentially, we built a reserve. And when I left, I think we had a, about a um, well, $15 million, 12 to $15 million reserve. Wow. Uh, because we knew someday, you know, there's going to be something that's going to happen. Uh, like We're a global pandemic. A pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Wow. Well, I, and I, I'm sure that reserve uh, helps a, a ton during, during these recent times with the pandemic. And, uh, and and whatnot, and you know, I would love for you, if you don't mind, for a second, to reflect on 
the sustainability measures that that you took there. That was one of the things also that I was most impressed with. And and you know, I, I think for um for a number of years, people said to themselves, and I, I actually remember when I first came to Cal Poly, we sat down um for our tax sheltered annuity and we sat down with uh this uh uh wealth management financial advisor and we said, well, we want our tax sheltered annuity. We would like for it to go into um, sustainability, a sustainability fund, uh, you know, and, and, and the, the financial advisor looked at us and said, Oh, so you don't want to make money <laughs> with a yeah. straight face, with a straight face. Well, he looked at me and said that. And I said, uh, and, and, you know, it, had I had any say in where like Cal Poly had the tax sheltered annuity set up with this one right. organization. Had I had any say whatsoever, I would have said I would have stood up and walked out. Um, but yeah. I didn't. And so instead I had to argue with her. <laughs> yeah. um, but well, and, so, and, you know, I think it's important that you you guys made it um, financially viable to be sustainable. Yeah. And I think that's important. Um, so can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. And you know what? I mean, to your point, Brian, I think for the longest time, and in a lot of cases, it really was uh, an expense to implement a recycling program when it first got started. I remember I presented to our association, International Association of, of Assembly Managers, IAAM, and and I had you know I had someone come up to me saying, "Yeah, but how much do you have to spend on that?" And, I, and when I was in San Diego, and I said, "We're actually turning it into a, a revenue generator," and and honestly an expense reducer. And they go, well, how can you reduce expenses? I, I'm glad you asked. And <laughs> right. essentially landfills, landfills in California, I mean, to, to haul trash to a landfill in California, because there's not, you know, there's, there's not land for that is a very expensive. So every single trash hall, and you can only imagine what a, you know, 500,000 square foot exhibit hall convention center can generate in trash when you've had a major trade show in. And whatever you can do to divert that from the landfill is going to save you in the tipping fees when you haul you know, to, a, to a landfill. So implementing a recycling program can just save a lot of money in trash hauling and, and tipping fees. You can actually, at one point, you can actually sell you know, the, some, of, some of those products. We retrofitted all of our, again, for the cost reduction, retrofitted all of our exhibit halls from the energy sucking metal halide, which are beautiful lights. I mean, they light it up brighter than day, you know, 100 foot candles or whatever, but they just suck the energy out. And, and now the technology out there with LED and with fluorescent is to where you can duplicate that kind of lighting for one tenth the power usage. Right. You know, so you're reducing uh, that way in, in, in uh, Los Angeles, working with the city of Los Angeles, of course, having the support of Mayor Garcetti. Um, we ended up installing or having installed a 2.4 megawatt solar array. Now think about it. You got these, you know, 750,000 square foot of flat roof exhibit hall, Yeah. you know, facing the sun, you know, why not use that? Right. And we filled up about two thirds of it with these solar panels and uh, generated, um, I think it was 25% of all the power of, and we're one of the largest convention centers in North America right. with solar power. So again, energy reduction. Granted, there was an, an expense, which th in this case it was a capital expense by the city, but the payback was, you know, like five years, six years, something like that. Right. And then, of course, the life of solar they say is twenty, but actually you can get probably twenty-five or even more out of it if you 
if you do it right. Um, one of the other things that, that we did that we thought was just a socially responsible thing to do, we had uh, the women's shelter and also the, uh, the midnight shelter. And of course, homelessness is just, you know, a, a major issue for every, every city, major city, especially, and definitely in Los Angeles. So, you know, you figure we put on, you know, like the Grammys uh, and, and we have a sit down meal for 3000 people. Well, there's going to be a lot of food left over because you, you know, in the hotels that are in the hotel industry, usually you set for about 5% more, especially when something like the Grammys, you don't want to have, you know, you don't want to fall short. So there's always food left over. We had set it up with them. And we did this one when I was in San Diego also to where we would give the heads up to the shelters and they would bring over the refrigerator trucks and they'd be waiting on our docks. And, and when all the leftover food was down and feeding uh, homeless and in the women's shelter uh, after every single banquet that we did. And so rather than in, in the old days and a lot of hotels would do this too, you would just throw that food away. It was just breakage, right? It was, or maybe try to work it into, you know, something, you know, for the staff meals or whatever, but uh, so much food just went to waste. Uh, and, and, you know, now, now we, we we're actually feeding the homeless uh, and, and helping out in that regard. It wasn't a moneymaker. It wasn't a cost reducer, but it was definitely a socially responsible thing to do. So, you know, those are the kind of programs that I could go on and on, but that we implemented both in San Diego and in, in Los Angeles that uh, either reduced um, expenses, generated a little bit of revenue, or, you know, was, was just a good neighbor thing to do that wasn't being done, before, you know, before we took over management of it. So we felt good about that. Right. Well, I love it. Um, I love it. And um, so I, I think, uh, I think we'll end on this note, you know, you, you've had a, you had a, a long career and, and um, uh, an incredibly successful career. And um, I just want to uh, take this opportunity to thank you so much for, for the time and, and service that you, that you gave to, to our advisory council. And um, just want to you know, say how much we appreciate that. Um, I wonder if there's, um, in looking back on your career and also in thinking about um, the future of hospitality and the, the future of, of our, our industry, um, is, there, is there advice that you would give to, to today's student who, who is interested in, in thinking about a, a career in hospitality or a career in facility management or a career in convention centers? Um, is there is there advice that you would give to them in uh, that uh, from a uh, sage words sage words of wisdom if you uh, if you will probably a number of them to be honest with you so yeah. stop me if I how say much time I, how much time do we have right <laughs> uh, you know I mentioned earlier you know don't be in too big of a hurry and don't try to start your career you know as mid manager or upper level management. Even if you could land a job like that, you're not ready for it, and you're you're doing yourself a disservice. There is no job uh, beneath you in our industry. You know, number one, you better love this industry um, because it's going to be long hours, and and sometimes it's you know it's very stressful, very difficult work. Uh, but you probably know by now, since you're in the program, whether you're going to enjoy this career or not, whether you go into hotels or or event management or or facility management like I did. Don't be in too big of a hurry. Try to hit your wagon to the rising stars. You know, I was very fortunate. And this is why I like to do these kinds of things too, Brian, is that I was very fortunate to have, have been mentored by the best. 
And, you know, I'll take a little bit of credit for that because I could, I could, I sought them out. Right. And, um, and, you know, ask them, you know, look, I would like to be doing what you're doing someday. I don't want to, I don't want to be a nuisance. I don't want to be that gnat that just won't go away. Right. You know, but will you help? And, and I was fortunate to where they, they taught me a lot on the way up. So look for those kinds of opportunities and those kinds of people mm-hmm. uh, in our industry. And there's a lot of them, by the way, that uh, are, are willing to, to give back. Really great and, advice. And, uh, and then don't, don't be afraid to change. I mean, you, you, we haven't really talked about it, but um, if you were to look at my career path, you know, someone might have said, boy, you know, what the heck were you thinking? You were kind of all over the map. But every single job I had actually helped me with the next one. So, you know, I started out in arena management, auditorium management. Then I went into the hotel business for a little while for three years. Then I went into the convention center event management and, and worked my way up through it. Then I went to the Del Mar Fairgrounds and Racetrack as a deputy general manager. Right. But now we had three big exhibit halls and we did a lot of consumer shows and we did a lot of concerts. We also did a 20 day fair that was one of the biggest fairs in California. That's all, you know, experience industry uh, yeah. stuff that, and it was just an incredible uh, experience. I did that for five years. Then I got recruited to go and manage Westworld of Scottsdale, a, a 200 acre equestrian special event venue. You know, right. what the heck were you thinking there? Right. But again, you know, spending five years there, it was just an incredible experience. And a lot of the same things, you know, that I'd learned in the other, right. uh, other positions definitely helped me with that. I was general manager there. So every one of them was, was a promotion. And then I went back to San Diego uh, as general manager, got back in the convention center industry and stuck with that. So my point being, you know, don't be afraid to say, you know, that's that's another facet or another area of experience industry that might be interesting. And if it appeals to you, you know, go for it. I guarantee you, you're going to learn something from it that you might not have learned if you just stayed where you were. Right. And I think that's the point, like recognizing that each and every each and every experience that we have is a learning opportunity and um you know you needed that general manager title there in Scottsdale to get that the other general right. manager title that you really wanted there uh where the surf was better right well and, and Brian I mean you're right but that's also something that right wrong or indifferent so often people in an organization will not get promoted to the top job in that order. So if, if I had stayed, you know, because I became the uh, director of event services in 1988, opened the building in 1989, and then I left for Del Mar in 1996. Had I stayed in San Diego thinking someday I'm going to be general manager of the San Diego Convention Center, it would have never happened. Right. For whatever reason, you they, they always bring that level from outside. And so because I went to Del Mar, because I, you know, as, as a deputy general manager and got that experience and then went to Westworld and became general manager, was I able to, at least in their eyes, I had the credentials to truly be a general manager. I would, I don't think I would have ever made it had I just stayed with the San Diego Grimmins Center straight on through. Right. Well, that, that's a, that's a, a really, really good point there. And, um, you know, Brad, I can't thank you enough. I really appreciate you taking the time. I um, I know you're 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 currently. Uh, let's uh, before you before you leave, tell us a little bit about the pecan farm. What's pecan farming like? A lot, well, a, lot of, uh, a lot of a lot of you know a lot of. Uh, I hope you've got something to pick them up. Have you got <laughs> have you got something where you're not breaking your back? 
<laughs> well, yeah, actually, I'm going to have someone do it. And it's okay, uh, good. <laughs> you, mentioned, you mentioned that I'd retired. You know, actually, I call it semi-retirement. Semi the fact is, I'm I'm a busy guy uh, with that, but it's doing. You know, now I'm I, I'm working for me. You know, and yeah, and it's really not a a, a full-time gig. We it's a beautiful little 12-acre pecan farm right on in the hill country, right on the Guadalupe River. Um, but it, it does, it does produce. And because of COVID, I haven't been able to really harvest because, you know, you need a lot of equipment to really truly be a, a, a farmer. And I've got a tractor, I've got all that stuff, but I, I, I basically am going to contract that portion of it out. And then you do a, a, you a split. So there you um, go. we definitely can get, you know, 30 to 50 pounds of pecans off of each tree. I've got 80 trees. So, you know, you do the math, I can generate a lot of pecans. You learn something as a you learn something as a general manager there. Uh, oh, absolutely! <laughs> farm that out, man. Don't be You're doing like, that. I'm not picking up all those pecans. <laughs> no, heck no. But actually, these last uh, couple of years, Brian, I've been feeding the. We've got a bunch of axis deer and white-tailed deer, and we kind of created a refuge. I'm not a hunter, but there's a lot of hunters in Texas, so the deer uh-huh. are safe on my 12 acres. Okay, uh, awesome. And I, and I adopted a quarter horse, so from a neighbor, uh, wasn't oh. able to take care of her anymore. So we got a we got a horse, and and uh, so it's really the good farm life in a little town called Comfort, which has only got two thousand uh, residents. So it's a uh, you know you can imagine going from Los Angeles uh-huh. for almost eight years to uh-huh. a little little town in the hill country of Texas of two thousand. Wow, uh, it's a wow. good transition for an old guy. Trust me. That sounds idyllic. I I love it. Almost idyllic as Lucadia, California, where you are That's right now, you know. <laughs> so, Not bad here, and I'm still getting out in the surf. Uh, I was going to say, you got to split your time so you can get your surf in. And, you know, you know the, the second ever podcast that I did um, was uh, with uh, one of our alums there in, in um, Lucadia. The, uh, he owns the Surf House. Oh, really? Uh, you probably okay. know about the surf, I do house. Know the surf house. Absolutely. Yeah. You should stop in and say hello to Nikki there. Yeah. He's okay. uh, yeah. He's one of our grads. Yeah. So, okay. Uh, I'll definitely do that. Yeah. And, and I forget it's, uh, is, is it Lucadia? There's, there's a, uh, it's like on the border right there. Right. I think. Um, yeah. No, I think it's, it's Encinitas Lucadia. Encinitas Lucadia. Yeah. I was yeah. trying to remember which one. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Awesome. Well, Brad, th- uh, thanks again for your time. Really appreciate it. Um, and uh, uh, take care and um, send me a pecan pie when you get uh, when you get those uh, pecans harvested. Will do. All, All right. Favorite. Awesome. Take care.